Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Monday morning show for you today, including the latest on BC's decriminalization of drug possession. We're the only province to do this. Record high overdose deaths last year. There are calls to expand the safer supply of doctor-prescribed opioids, including doctor-prescribed fentanyl. Is this really where we're going to go now? Public drug use on the rise. The coroner of British Columbia says that is not a danger to the public. I think a lot of people may disagree with her on that. Got the latest for you on that uh, issue. Also, embattled cabinet minister Selena Robinson here. Her controversial comments about Israel and the Palestinians. Man, this is getting messy for EB here now. Premier David Eby, he has condemned these comments. Robinson has apologized. Eby accepted the apology. However, calls for her resignation continue here. We've got the latest for you on that. So we have all that. We have lots more today. But first, we start with an election year in British Columbia, B.C. politics, Really heating up here now. My guest is John Rustad, a leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, rising in the polls here. John, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on this morning. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. So we're looking at the election. The election campaign is basically on, right? I mean, the election's in October, but are you in, are you in campaign mode right now? Well, actually, I haven't less started. haven't stopped being in campaign mode yeah. ever since I took on being the leadership last March. Yeah, yeah, and uh, let's talk a little bit about that, because right now, if you take a look at some of these opinion polls, Premier David Eby appears to be way ahead, your party in second place here, the BC United Party, your former party, uh, in third place, and they're trying to catch up. Let me play a clip here for you, for your thoughts. Kevin Falcon, all right, leader of BC United, former BC Liberal Party, your former party, here, he's on an ad campaign now, they have launched this ad blitz, Let's have a listen to part of the ad, then I'll get your thoughts. I'm Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. We've become Canada's least affordable place to live. Yet the NDP plans to make things even more unaffordable by tripling the carbon tax. I'm running for Premier because I want to fix our cost of living crisis. It seems to me, I think the NDP, they look at the rise of your party, John, in second place with the BC Conservatives, this BC United fighting it out with you guys too for third place, the second or third, and he's just got to love it. He's got to love this split on the right. What do you think about that? Well, you know, before Christmas, we did some polling with Leger, and what it showed is that 56% of the people in British Columbia are considering voting Conservative. And what that means is that, you know, they're not there yet. They want us to know more about us, but they're really not happy with the NDP. And quite frankly, they'll never consider voting for the United Party. Since 1991, it's been 32 years, 16 years of BC Liberal and 16 years of NDP. And can anybody say anything is better? We have a crisis in so many things. And, uh, you know, you can't solve the problems with the same level of thinking that created them. That's why the Conservative Party has been rising so much up in the polls. Okay, I'll tell you what, it's fascinating to watch and we'll see where this all goes. Now, let me ask you real quick. What about this idea of a merger? Like people keep bringing this up. Can you guys bury the hatchet, merge these two parties together? BC United, BC Conservatives, you could call yourself the United Conservatives. Like, is it too late for that? Well, 
We actually put a group together of business people to approach the United Party before Christmas and to actually have some of these conversations, and there was no interest from the United Party. The biggest issue that we have, quite frankly, as a Conservative Party is 85% of our vote is not interested in having anything to do with the United Party. And so there wasn't really a path to be able to look at bringing things together. We explored all kinds of options, but um, first of all, you've got to have a willing partner on the other side, but second of all, uh, there has to be a realistic path, and there just was none. So we're, we're proceeding, we're electing, or we're, we're nominating very, very good candidates right across this province, and we are going to be competing for government here in 2024. Speaking to John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, the election looming here in the fall. Let's talk about one of the hot issues here in B.C. right now, John, and that is the B.C. Land Act. Who makes the decisions over Crown land in British Columbia? The B.C. government moving forward with shared decision-making with First Nations, all part of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which I recall you voted for in, in the legislature when it was passed. But John, so you're John. You're now saying though that this should be scrapped. Is that right? Yeah. So we we did share decision making in the past. What they're talking about doing is going to joint decision making. In other words, they want to actually give the authority for decision making in British Columbia over to First Nations. This is Canada. This is British Columbia. The Crown needs to be able to retain the ability to make decisions on the landscape. And quite frankly, if David Eby wants to have this kind of a radical shift in terms of how British Columbia is managed, how we manage our resources, how we manage our land, even how we manage our private land, <clears throat> I, say to, I say to Premier Eby, drop the writ. Go to the people right now and ask for permission to do this because I don't believe people want that to happen in British Columbia. Okay, well, the government is saying that this is actually going to be I'll bring a lot of clarity to British Columbia, certainty over the land base. It'll be good for people, good for business, good for resource development. So let me play a clip here for you. Get your thoughts. You obviously disagree, but let me play the other side of it here. Nathan Cullen, he is the B.C. cabinet minister responsible here on these changes. And here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. It allows the government, it gives us a tool to enter an agreement with First Nations, as opposed to fighting it out in the court, costing us all millions and millions of public dollars, and creating a lot of uncertainty for people who live in that very region. Okay, you're a, you're a former Minister of Indigenous Relations here in the province, so I know you know all about how, how important it is to get these agreements and deals, right? What do you think about what he had to say there? Well, I think, quite frankly, he's either being intentionally misleading or he just is, you know, doesn't understand how things work. I signed 435 agreements with First Nations across this province to get things done. We don't need to go to the courts. There is plenty of opportunity to be able to have those types of approaches. But doing joint decision-making, what that ultimately means is it's going to freeze out doing anything on the landscape. And there's, you know, we probably can't get into the details of it uh, in this program. We don't have enough time. But it is, what ends up happening is where you have overlaps, where First Nations don't agree. They just refuse to accept the authority of other First Nations. So, so the default is nothing gets done. We're seeing that today, even with UNDRIP. For example, in Merritt areas that were damaged by wildfires. We can't get permits to go and salvage that wood and get it replanted and get it to get it reforested. We can't get the mm. permits through the process. Why? Because there isn't agreement. And this is wood that's going to die and, you know, it only has a life, a life shelf of about three to five years, and then it's not useful. We're seeing right across the province, two years or longer delays getting projects going, getting permits. Up in the peace country, we've gone to a place now where we used to do operations on crown land. Everybody's had to go into operations on private land because we can't get agreements on the crown land. This is not the way British Columbia needs to be managed. We need to be respectful of First Nations. We need to enter into agreements. We need to look at economic reconciliation. But what we can't do is we can't freeze out our opportunity 
to generate the revenue that we need for health care and education and the other things in this province. Okay, you mentioned UNDRIP there, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which has been adopted and, and passed by the legislature of British Columbia. I, I recall, John, how you voted in favor of this. And let's go back in time here, uh, listen to part of your speech in the legislature at this, at the, at this time. Um, this is you speaking in the legislature before you voted in favor of UNDRIP. Let's listen. Supporting those rights and title, uh, I think, uh, you know, supporting the advancement of reconciliation, um, that's something that governments need to be doing. Uh, it's just, it's the right thing to do. Okay, if it was the right thing to do back then to support UNDRIP, why are you, why are you criticizing it now? What happened? Well, I should probably listen to the whole part of, my, of what I said. <clears throat> There's no question that I am all for advancing reconciliation, particularly economic re- reconciliation. I am all for being able to recognize Indigenous rights and trying to address title. But I had reservations about certain sections of UNDRIP back then. I warned government about that. When I was minister, I actually went to Ottawa and talked to Ottawa about how we could implement UNDRIP in British Columbia. But we needed to be able to address certain sections. And what we are seeing is government has not addressed those sections, and that is creating chaos in the landscape. What we're actually seeing from the results of UNDRIP is friction between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. That is not reconciliation. We actually need to be able to see a place where both Indigenous and non-Indigenous prosper in this province. And we have that opportunity to be able to move things forward. Why did you vote for it then? As I said back then, I said that I had reservations. I raised those with the ministry. I raised those in my speech in terms of those reservations. But I wanted to be able to move forward reconciliation, recognizing and hoping that this government would be able to see that this was a problem that they could resolve um, through through a process. And they haven't. What they're doing is doubling down on these problems. Well, okay, so you had reservations about it, but you voted for it anyway. Now you're calling for it to be... You're, you're calling for un, un, this United Nations Declaration to be scrapped in BC now, is that correct? That is correct. And the reason okay. for that is well. when we look at the implementation, when we look at the problems it's causing on the landscape, when we look at the friction it's causing in society, the whole purpose of UNDRIP was to recognize and, you know, and respect Indigenous rights, Indigenous people, but to look at reconciliation. Reconciliation means being able to bring people together to find a way to be able to you know, work uh, together to be, you know, sort of unified, if you want to call it that. This is creating divisions. Well, just why? like what we're seeing in education, where you have something that is creating divisions in our society, it is not the right path. We need to be able to go in a different direction. Okay, but we've got an election coming up, and why should voters uh, trust you to keep your promises and your word on issues like this when you're clearly quite capable, quite willing to flip flop on it? You voted in favor of UNDRIP. Now you're saying we should get rid of it. You voted in favor of the carbon tax. Now you're saying we should get rid of the carbon tax. I mean, how, what are, how are people supposed to interpret that? Well, so what I'm saying here is the Conservative Party of British Columbia is we have tried different approaches. When I voted in favor of the carbon tax, it was supposed to be revenue neutral. It was supposed to be a way to be able to just be a tax shift. It clearly did not achieve that. It has become a burden on people. It has actually become taxing people into poverty. When something is not working, you need to get rid of it. When I voted in favor of UNDRIP, quite frankly, you know, I was forced to as a party, but I did look at it from the perspective I raised the issues 
um, of, of my concerns with the, with the government, like I said, on these issues. Clearly, it is not working. It is not bringing reconciliation. It's creating divisions. When something is not working, it's time to change. It's time to get rid of it. That's the approach we're looking at across the board. <clears throat> For example, when you're looking at health care, the approach this government's taking is, is destroying our health care system. We don't continue on working on and supporting that. You need to have change if we want to be able to see improvements. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, climbing in the opinion polls here, the election coming up in the fall, talking about who controls the land base here in British Columbia, the looming changes to the Land Act, the shared decision-making with First Nations proposed by the B.C. government. Let me play another clip here for you, John, for your thoughts. This is uh, B.C. Cabinet Minister Nathan Cullen here saying that, look, we've been working on this for a long time. We passed that United Nations declaration that we discussed, and nobody should be surprised about this, that we're going in this direction in B.C. Uh, Let's have a listen to him here, then I'll get your thoughts. Nathan Cullen. I'm a bit confused why folks are surprised by this. There's this, uh, I think, a narrative or a sense that there's something defensive in the government or something that's not being uh, forthright about it, but that's... It's the opposite in the sense of we've entered these agreements already. Okay, so he said he's already done some agreements like this and no one should be surprised. John Rustad, your thoughts? Like I say, we had shared decision-making before, but they're going a step further to joint decision-making. Uh, what's, the dif- what's the difference? The difference is who has the ultimate say. In shared decision-making, the Crown is responsible for managing Crown land. And they work with First Nations to do and to be able to achieve that. In joint decision making, it's both the Crown and the First Nation that are the decision makers, and that actually means a transfer of liability, uh, a transfer of risk, uh, a transfer of the responsibility in terms of the professional people that are needed. It is a major shift in terms is it of how a, is it done. A, does it amount to a veto? Sure by First Nation. Well, the government says it does not, though, right? Of course it does. We're already seeing that How now. How does it? Because in joint decision-making, both decision-makers have to agree. Otherwise, it's not done. Okay, in, so in if the government... So you're, so, you're saying, so you're saying, okay, let's say, for example, someone wants to build a ski hill on, on Crown land in British Columbia. The government thinks it's a good project and it's in the public interest, but a, a neighboring First Nation doesn't want it. You're saying the government under this system would not overrule them and that the project would be done? That's correct. And so, what, for example, what we're seeing right now, uh, even with the, what is currently in place in Seashelt, there's a, a person who's got some private land. He's doing some work on his land. He's had permits all along to do this. He went to renew his permit, and the government is refusing to give the permit. And what they're saying is, is you have to go talk to the First Nation. So he goes to talk to the First Nation. The First Nation says, uh, I want a piece of the action. I want part of, part of this project. This is on private land. And now the government is refusing to issue a permit because there isn't agreement with the First Nation. Do you see this as a major election issue here going forward in the fall? I mean, the the B.C. United Party, we've discussed them already. They've also criticized the direction. They voted for this UNDRIP bill, too. But how do you see this shaping up? Like, what are you hearing from people? Well, what I'm seeing is this. We have a crisis in health care. We've got a crisis in crime. We've got a crisis in addictions. Um, we have a government that has taken away the authority of local governments, uh, destroying the fabric of, of communities. Uh, we've got a government that's taken away the authority, uh, you know, with regards to policing. They're even taking, the, taking away your opportunity to even have public input. And now they're going to dramatically change how the landscape is managed. It's time, David Eby, stop this authoritarian uh, socialist approach and drop the writ and go to the people and actually get a mandate. Well, you want to know what, what do you mean? Drop the writ. You want an election right let's now? Go, let's go tomorrow. Drop the you, writ you on this issue. Now. Let's go. You ready to go? 
we are ready to go. We'll fight this election whenever it comes. But I can tell you, what we're looking at right now is the government, quite frankly, that is overstepping what it's doing. It's, it's, it is uh, a, really an assault, quite frankly, on our democracy. I find it very offensive, and this, this sure. should not carry on. Thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. Talk about surging credit card debt all across Canada in 2023. Canadians racked up more than $1 billion in credit card debt. This is up sharply over the last few years. It works out to an average credit card debt of $3,000. Now, in a recent study here by the new, the immigration group Savvy New Canadians, they did a study of which cities in Canada their residents have the most credit card debt per capita. And at the top of the list, oh boy, BC not faring well here. Victoria, highest per capita credit card debt in Canada. Number one in Canada, most credit card debt. Number two, Vancouver has the highest, second highest per capita credit card debt in Canada, according to this study. Wow. Have a listen. Let's have a listen. I got Rubina Ahmed Hawk standing by to discuss this. First, let's have a listen to this report on rising credit card debt. This is from Global News. With higher interest rates impacting variable rate debt, more people are feeling the financial squeeze. And while mortgages make up the majority of variable rate debt, financial planner Jackie Porter says high inflation is pushing more of us to use credit cards just to get by. The simple way to make ends meet if you don't have money in the account is to charge it. Recent data shows plastic reliance by businesses and households is on the rise. According to Equifax, spending on credit cards is up more than 20 percent. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Rabina Ahmed Hawk. Rabina is a personal finance expert and host of For What It's Worth on Global. Rabina, thank you for coming on again. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to have you here to talk about this. And boy, we know that debt is on the rise. Consumer debt is growing. Credit card debt is going up. But man, it looks like it's going up quite a lot. And especially right here in Vancouver and in Victoria, too. Your thoughts? I, it's no surprise. Uh, this survey showed that credit card debt is up 4% since 2019. So we're charging more and more to our credit card and we're leaving it there because we can't pay the balance off. Uh, life is more expensive, just like Jackie Porter said in that clip there, the financial planner, that when we don't have the money to pay for everyday things, we have to put it somewhere. We have to get that money from somewhere. And that is you know, the easiest thing to do is to charge it. I think also partially it has to do with you know, the cost of living is number one, but also has to do with uh, you know individuals not fully understanding how expensive it is to carry a balance on a credit card. So thinking, you know, carrying some balance on a credit card for a few months is not a big deal when in fact it is. It's one of the most expensive ways to manage your finances. But unfortunately for a lot of people, especially who've seen uh, their jobs stop and start during the pandemic and things aren't back to where they were uh, before 2020, the only option they have is to charge it to their credit card. Yeah, and when we talking about cost of living, when we take a look at the cost of living in the city of Vancouver, one of the highest in the country, Victoria, super high too. Rents and housing leading the way. Gasoline prices super expensive in in BC, and it's this is an expensive province. These are expensive cities, the most expensive in Canada. I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised 
that people in Vancouver and Victoria have got the most credit card debt in the whole country. That ties it right to the cost of living, correct? Yeah, absolutely does. And I think it's worth noting that Victoria and Vancouver, the with the highest credit card debt, uh, sitting at twelve thousand, more than twelve thousand dollars, and then after that is uh, cities in in Ontario, Oshawa, and Toronto. It's about forty percent less their credit card wow. debt. So even though um, you know we look at Victoria and Vancouver and say yes, it's the most expensive, but it's the most expensive by far. People are charging more on their credit card uh, in British Columbia than they are anywhere in the country, and by far. So it's not like Toronto is just slightly behind. Uh, Toronto debts just coming in over $7,000. So it really does highlight how expensive life is, how hard it is for um, everyday Canadians living um, on the West Coast to to buy things for their family that they need. And, and they're turning to this really expensive way of managing their finances, which is through their credit card. Right. And then you've got those sky high interest rates there typically on a credit card. And like you said, it can be the most for most people, I think maybe the most expensive debt that they might carry. That's why I always try to make a make a point every month to try and pay off that balance. And do you think some people think like, well, maybe I can just carry a little bit there. If I don't pay it all off, I can just carry a little bit on the balance going forward. Then that adds up. It absolutely does. I mean, even average credit card balance is about $3,000 for those who are carrying a balance. And that's really expensive. And now by law, credit card companies have to show you on the side of the statement how long it would take if you made minimum payments. Now, minimum payments are a joke. It's like $10 or $20 a month. It's very, very little amount of money. But even if you made, say, half the payment, right? So you paid off 50% of your credit card uh, balance, it's still charging you interest on the entire balance. I don't think many Canadians understand that. So if you charge thousand dollars to your credit card this month and you pay off five hundred dollars uh the interest that you will pay will be on the entire balance remaining mm. not just on the five hundred dollars that is remaining after you pay that five hundred off so it's really important to pay every single penny of that balance off if you possibly can and understand that if you don't you're paying interest on all the purchases that you made that month what is a typical interest rate in a credit card like can you shop around and get different rates you can. I mean, I've heard this. I mean, I've covered personal finance for so long. And a lot of times I'll hear people say, oh, you can shop around and get a better rate or you can call your credit company and get your rate reduced. I think a lot of the times people are talking about promotional rates. So credit cards, will companies will sometimes try to entice customers to come over by saying, oh, we'll give you a promotional rate of 6% for a year or, a, or six months if you bring your entire balance over. And that, of course, does save you money if you're paying 18, 19, 21, you know, up to 21%, 22%, which is the typical typical amount that we pay. I believe the average credit card uh, interest rate is 20.5% or just about just about around that. So most likely, no matter where you go and, and, and get your credit card, you're going to be paying anywhere from 18 to 22%. So you should never use that as a source of um, carrying any balance. If you are carrying a balance, you should try to get a low interest product, whether it be uh, a, a line of credit, even better, a home equity line of credit, which is the cheapest way to borrow money, but you need to own a home in order to get a home equity line of credit so that's some that's one barrier for a lot of people uh but credit card uh, credit card debt is expensive it's only second really to payday loans which are astronomical uh but still it's not a very savvy way to manage your money uh on for the long term yeah speaking of robina ahmed hawk host of for what it's worth surging credit card debt particularly high in vancouver and victoria highest per capita in the country some do you recommend as a as a personal finance advisor like 
I actually really like using the credit card to get points, right? Like if you can manage to pay off that balance and keep on top of that balance, I find some of the points programs can be quite quite good on some of these cards. What do you think of that? So I have a love-hate relationship with loyalty points. So okay. I am just like you, Mike. I like to get my, you know, credit card balance. So when I get it paid off, it tells me how many points I earned. It does give you that little bit of dopamine, like, ooh, look at me. I'm in that next category now. Um, and loyalty points are set up to make you feel that way. You've reached a new height. You know, this is really, especially for travel points, you've reached, you've reached a new a new uh, um, threshold, and now you're in this new category where you get all these new perks. So that can get people excited. If you collect points to get groceries, it can be really exciting to get to the cash register and be like, ooh, free groceries for this month. The only thing that I tell people is that you have to make sure, and this requires extreme discipline, that you are not shopping with loyalty in mind. Always shop with value in mind. So yes, charging items to your credit card so you don't have to carry around wads of cash makes a lot of sense. And having a loyalty program attached to it that then gives you that bonus uh, also it, you know, it makes sense. But make sure that you're not spending more to get loyalty points. How many times have you mm. been in, I'm not going to mention the store, where you have to get to a certain amount of spending to get 20 times the points? And you do that, the, the cashier will say, well, you're only $10 away. And you go and just scramble and you buy some gum or something. That is what you should avoid. You should just be shopping as you normally shop, buying the things you normally need. Because I can guarantee you, nobody all of a sudden needs $10 worth of gum or something, you know, as an example. <laughs> let's, let's talk about some of the other cost pressures that people are facing right now. And I think for a lot of people, Rabina, an unexpected illness can really throw your... You're planning for a loop, your whole family, of course. And if you get, if you develop cancer or even a less serious illness or a disability, boy, that can really, really sideswipe people for sure. Brand new study out on this shows that people, Canadians who have cancer in particular, facing rising out-of-pocket medical care costs here. Let's listen to Stephen Piazza here, Canadian Cancer Society. So we essentially um, asked Canadians how they would feel about paying the average cost uh, of an out-of-pocket cost for a cancer diagnosis. We found that about 90% of people said that a sudden cancer diagnosis would have significant impacts on their personal finances. Yeah, and for people who are faced with these costs, it can be hundreds of dollars a month. Rubina, do you find that in your experience an unexpected illness, is that one of the, the, big, uh, the big hurdles people have to get over here? Well, unexpected event period is what really yeah. derails your finances and illness. Uh, we are lucky enough in Canada that, you know, a lot of it is covered by uh, our provincial health care. Uh, but if you, especially for cancer patients, if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking to try a drug that's not covered by health care or maybe uh, go to a doctor that may not be 100% covered, they, maybe they do some special treatment. If definitely, if you want to go out of country, if you've heard that there's someone that can help you, uh, when you're in that situation, you want to do everything you can to be healthy again. Your family wants to do that as well. And I think that's also a misnomer that we we as Canadians feel that 
everything is covered. Um, to give a very, very minor example, my kids have some extreme allergies. And when I went uh, to fill a prescription, uh, they, they said this is, you know, in Ontario, for example, they, they cover prescriptions for kids uh, under 12. And they said this is not covered by the Ontario uh, plan that you have. And so I had to pay out of pocket. Now, that's a very minor example, but it did help me understand that I can't just assume that everything that a doctor prescribes me is going to be covered either by my employment insurance or by my health care, uh, my provincial health care. And that is true for very expensive cancer treatments as well. So the doctor may recommend a treatment saying this has worked in these cases, but it's not covered. So where do you find the money? If you've got a mortgage, if you've got kids in university, if you've got student debt, you've got to also manage that at the same time. So it's really important uh, yeah. for those who want to protect their future future finances if their health was to fail to have some sort of life insurance that, that makes sure that you can get through those times. Yeah, especially, of course, if you are have to quit your job or retire early or go on medical leave and maybe you're not receiving your full income anymore, you lose your job and then you're facing some of these costs. This survey talks about additional costs that people might face each month for me- for medications that are not covered, caregiver expenses, transportation to get back and forth from healthcare appointments. You know, for people who are faced with that, do you think, you mentioned life insurance, what about like a disability insurance? Does that make sense? I, I remember uh, an insurance guy trying to once uh, encourage me to get disability insurance in case I was disabled and I couldn't work. Um, and I didn't I didn't do it because you never think that's going to happen to you, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's really important to like life insurance is a very personal um, decision and there are different types of life insurance. There's whole life insurance, which is very expensive. There's term insurance, which uh, is, has, has, is, is cheaper, but it has a end date. So you pay into it. And if you don't have to ever tap into it, then that money is just that that's what it was. It was just insurance. That money is gone. Um, there's, you know, a lot of very complicated whole insurance policies where they claim that they have a savings plan for you that you can use. My best advice is that if you want to make sure that you can maintain the lifestyle that you have set up for yourself, is that really approach it from that perspective. So you can do two things. One, you can either save enough money in an emergency fund that if something was to happen, you could still pay your mortgage. You would still have some extra money to pay for things like medication and treatments that weren't covered, or you can look for insurance that would uh, cover your cost of living while you couldn't work or you were off ill, or if even worse, if you passed away um, to, to help at least your family in the, in the interim as they got, you know, got their life together and, and started to live that uh, live life without you, which is a terrible thing to think about, but I think it's, it's good yeah. planning. I think some people misunderstand uh, life insurance where they think that nothing will change. Usually when there is an illness or there's something dramatic that happens with your health, um, even with insurance, your life does change financially quite significantly because you're dealing with just a whole different stream of income and whole new expenses that you really can't 100% plan for. Rubina, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. Thank you so much for having me. I don't support encampments. I don't think they're a solution to uh, homelessness. Uh, I don't think they're safe uh, for the people who live in them. I've seen too many fires, too many injuries, and people have died. Okay, that's BC Premier David Eby there talking about homeless encampments in British Columbia. As you heard him say there, I don't support these encampments. He's seen too many people die in these encampments. He's seen too many fires. You think back to the encampment that was on the downtown east side on Hastings Street 
and they eventually moved in and took that one down. David Eby at the time there was saying that was the right thing to do to take that encampment down. But, of course, that's just one of many. I mean, you look all around British Columbia, so many of these encampments in different cities and across Canada, too. Will we ever find a solution to this or are encampments here to stay? Taking a look at the recent McLean's Magazine Special Edition 2024 Look Ahead. Cities will learn to live with encampments. Tent cities are here to stay thanks to increasing support from the courts. The article by Professor Stepan Wood from UBC. He's the Canada Research Chair, Law, Society and Sustainability. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Stepan, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Do we know how many of these encampments there are? in bc across or across canada i don't think we have a clear answer to that mike and part of the reason is that there's no agreement on uh defining the term encampment um some cities like edmonton uh, use that term just to refer to a single person in a single tent and others use it more for like a grouping of uh, a substantial number of people who have come together uh, in a in a tent city. Um, so we don't know, uh, and it really depends on how you define it, but we certainly know that uh, there are many of them in uh, almost every city in the province and uh, around the country, and not just in the cities. In recent years, um, they've been experienced also in small towns. Um, so I would certainly say that uh, nationwide, we're talking about um, more than a hundred, you know, uh, possibly hundreds. Yeah, yeah, no, the the problem is absolutely huge. And you write in McLean's magazine that you believe that these encampments are really not going to be eliminated overnight, that perhaps this is something we'll just have to get, get used to seeing. And especially when you've got involvement of the courts, right? Can you tell me about that? Is there a trend by the courts Mm -hmm. to allow these encampments to continue, even if got local governments want to shut them down? Yeah, well, um, the courts are involved um, and they play a significant role, but they're not the main actors. Uh, So what I would say is that up until recently, um, the courts have um, facilitated the problem of encampments uh, by basically allowing uh, governments uh, to have uh, preliminary injunctions to evict tent cities almost whenever the governments go to court to ask. They've been granted that. Uh, I did some research on uh, you know, systematically looking at the situation in B.C., and um, the courts have granted these preliminary injunctions to evict tent cities 85% of the time, uh, which is an, uh, an amazingly high rate. Uh, injunctions are supposed to be exceptional and unusual remedies. Um, and I, I haven't done the numbers for nationwide, but it's something similar. How does that contribute to the problem? It does that by um, basically supporting the uh, approach that many local governments have taken to encampments, which is to get them out of sight and out of mind. 
Um, and that just perpetuates the problem because what we've seen is that it's like a whack-a-mole sort of approach um, that uh, when they're cleared from one location, uh, people will show up in another location because yeah. the uh, that strategy doesn't get at the underlying problem, which is the massive and growing population of precariously housed and unhoused people. So... There, you think, I mean, you there's think, been a change in the last couple of years, but um, uh, I'll let you uh, ask. Well, <laughs> I, I, do you think that there may be circumstances where it's the right thing to, to do to shut some of these encampments down? Like I'm thinking back to the encampment on Hastings Street in the downtown east side. And I remember talking to the Vancouver fire chief who issued a, a fire order in that case, who felt this was an extremely dangerous situation. Uh, let's have a let's go back and l listen to what was said at that yeah. time. I'm interested in your thoughts. This is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Now this is back at the time when the city was getting ready to move in, remove that encampment. The provincial government said it was the right thing to do to shut it down as well. Here's the Vancouver Mayor at that time, Ken Sim. Large entrenched encampments like the one uh, that we have on East Hastings is not a viable model going forward. And the, the, the longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives. Yeah, I was Ken Sim at the time, and Premier David Eby was on board with that as well, saying, look, we can't tolerate this. Something has to be done. It has to be shut down. Let's listen to David Eby. Here's what he had to say at the time. We have seen fires. We have seen assaults. A survey of women uh, in the downtown east side encampments showed that of 50 women, 50 women had been assaulted in the encampments, 100%. Uh, this is not an acceptable situation. Okay, so that encampment was taken down. Speaking to Stepan Wood from UBC, do you think in some cases, like in that one, maybe it was the right thing to do to dismantle it? So the problem is you have to ask, um, what uh, effect does the eviction or dismantling of the encampments have? Does it actually um, improve the problems, the problems of gendered violence, of uh, fire, and so on? And the evidence does not support that. In fact, eviction of the encampments makes the problems worse. Um, now, I of course, there are issues about, you know, the particular locations of where people are sheltering, but um, evicting the encampments without providing supportive solutions elsewhere just makes the problem worse. That's what the evidence shows. And so I think what you have to ask is not, um, you know, are there problems in the encampments, but um, will evicting these people uh, worsen or improve the problem? So mm. that's where I think you know, some of the more imaginative approaches that have been coming up in the last uh, couple of years and are really spreading just this year all around the country um, are really worth looking at. So if fire safety is the issue, um, then uh, some form of fire safe um, shelter uh, would be uh, a better alternative. So I was really encouraged to see that the city of Vancouver is finally getting up and running with its first official experiment with uh, the tiny homes. Um, uh, and uh, they've got this project where I think they've opened 10 and they have a goal to open around 50 uh, in the next couple of years. 
which is a good move, but very much too slow to uh, deal with the actual problem. But that's one thing that is happening around the country, um, whether officially or unofficially, uh, working on building insulated, uh, heated shelters uh, that are supported with drinking water, sanitation, waste management, social support services, addiction support services, and so on. Um, that's making a step toward uh, a solution, but simply clearing the encampments is not a step towards a solution. Yeah, speak, speaking of that, that's really interesting because I, I guess there is an argument that, look, we're not getting rid of these. If you shut one down, it just another one just pops up somewhere else. So is it not better to simply accept that this is the situation and we manage it as best we can? Let me play a clip here for you from the housing minister here, Ravi Kalon, who was on the show recently, and he was critical of a decision by uh, the city of Prince George to shut down an encampment there. And he makes a, a precise, a very similar point that you just made, that, look, you're just, you're just moving this problem around by doing that. Here's what Ravi Kalon, the housing minister, told me. Essentially, what you're doing is you're moving people all the way through the city, dispersing them everywhere. Uh, it's hard to provide supports for individuals when they're dispersed. Uh, and so why not do it in a methodical way? Yeah, so he was talking there about, you know, let's try and get some permanent housing going up there in Prince George, what they've since been trying to do. But this idea of, like, tiny housing, or are you talking about almost like making a, a permanent encampment, like a city-sanctioned encampment? Well, um, I'm not sure permanent is what anybody would want, and uh, I don't, uh, I'm not in support of that. In fact, I think... Uh, nobody wants encampments, including the people right. who live in them. Uh, yeah. But I guess, so what I, uh, you know, I, I, I really support what Minister Kalin said there, um, that uh, the, you know, clearing these encampments just disperses people where they actually face isolation and in some cases greater risks to their safety and their health than they would in, um, in community in a tent city. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a matter of recognizing that the housing and homelessness crisis is such massive proportions that there are going to be thousands of people in British Columbia who are precariously housed or uh, living outdoors at any given time. And how do we support those people's right to basically to survive and the right to dignity um, uh, you know, in the interim, while um, governments at all level, uh, you know, gradually and hopefully more quickly uh, step up to uh, solve the housing crisis. Uh, and if that means uh, having a particular place in a city um, where uh, tents are allowed, um, that might be one solution. Another solution might be to have these tiny homes, which are not necessarily permanent structures. They could be, um, you know, relatively temporary structures. Um, but, uh, you know, that basically um, shifting the focus from evicting people from public spaces to no. uh, identifying their needs and supporting them. Right. Fascinating. Thank you, Stefan for Wood, for coming on today with your perspective on it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.